It's Thursday, September 6th, and you are listening to the 10th episode of Coming Stacks, a music podcast covering six decades of music, three albums at a time. Your hosts as we hit double digits are the three-man wrecking crew of John, Josh, and Matt. We have an exciting show this week with some of the most popular and influential acts of the 1960s. We start things off in segment one with John covering one of his favorite bands, The Who, and their 1964 debut album, My Generation. This is our first, but definitely not our last visit into the British band's vast catalog of albums. Our second segment has Josh continuing the group's voyage into the worlds of 60s R&B and soul, as he leads us on an exploration of the British singer Dusty Springfield's classic 1969 album, Dusty in Memphis. And in our final segment, we turn the keys over to Matt, who will take us through one of Pink Floyd's earliest albums, A Saucer Full of Secrets. This 1968 release was the group's second album and featured the original lineup of one of classic rock's most enduring acts. Set aside some time, relax, and join us inside. It is September 3rd when you're listening to this. Hopefully, you're listening to it on the first day that it is posted because we know you're dedicated Combing the Stacks fans. It is the Combing the Stacks podcast, number 10, Diaz. We are officially in double digits. Josh, how does it feel to be at 10 episodes of Combing the Stacks? I can't believe we've made it this far. Here's to 10 more. We don't even have band <laughs> dysfunction either. <laughs> I think Josh's sentiment rings true. We never. It's like people that are married for a year, they say they thought we'd never make it, but you know that there's no chance there could be a divorce. So, but hey, good, good sentiment to start off right off the bat. Matt, how about you? How are you feeling about 10? Doing pretty well. It's, it's, I, I was very skeptical at the beginning, if you remember, but uh, I think we're going strong. And uh, I hope we do more than 10 more, Josh. So. Well, you were we born. Will. We will. 
you were born skeptical, Matt. So I figured that we had to get you through it. But I think we're all in this for the long haul, if for no other reason. But we want to listen to an album from the 1970s at some point yeah. as well. So, I, I yeah. don't take things at face value. Somebody, you know, I, I demand a lot of. Uh, I need a lot of proof. I need a lot of evidence. I need, you know, I can't. I just don't take things. Yeah, I gotta. I, I gotta have that. <laughs> Yeah, you are. I I am ready to move on to the seventies. <laughs> are you really? Oh man, oh, we're Josh ready about to get to all the good stuff. We're about to get to all the good stuff. It's going to be so much fun. There's so, so much Beatles true. left. I know. God, Matt, Matt must be just creaming his creaming his pants right now. I might yep. I might quit after this decade. So so much Led Zeppelin. Too. There's only way. There's only so much you can. You can you're just uh, the only way you can go is down. You know. Don't you have to hang around for that one seventies Beatles album? That's true. I can leave after that. That's okay. Yeah, and that's at the top of the chart, so you at least have to go through the entire 70s to get to it. So <laughs> we've got you wrapped in for a while. So, All right. Well, I, I can tell you one thing. I've got a fair amount of cleaning of the stacks this week, which I'm pretty excited about because normally I am the, the last contributor in that area. Um, and at the, the because we're going to be talking quite a bit about these bands this week, I mean, just a real quick bumper at the beginning here. We're covering The Who. We're covering... Pink Floyd, we're covering Dusty Springfield. We're, I'm talking three heavyweights. So after some weeks of, I don't want to say obscure albums, but definitely albums uh, that maybe not everyone is familiar with, I think certainly The Who and Pink Floyd have crossed over into that, that mainstream area where you may not even know what they sound like, but know their name. And certainly Dusty Springfield is not exactly an obscure artist either. Before we go to Cleaning the Stacks, guys, what was your familiarity with the groups that we're covering this week? Let's reverse it this time. Matt? How about you? Uh, very familiar with Pink Floyd. Very familiar with The Who, though not familiar with either of the albums we're covering. And okay. only familiar with Dusty Springfield for one of the songs, uh, maybe a couple of songs, but one of the songs on this album. So it was, it was pretty much brand new for me. Uh, only a couple of tracks that I was familiar with. Okay. How about you, Josh? I know of Pink Floyd's hits and, and think of them as a cliche of the, of the 60s. Of the psychedelics, oh, okay. and, wow, and um, or yeah, I guess it would be the seventies too, right? And then uh, definitely more familiar with the Who, and it was interesting diving into Dusty Springfield because I only knew of her big hit from this album. Gotcha. All right. Well, I think. But hey, let's not uh, believe it any longer. I, I know all three of these acts real, real well, and I'm going to hold my my preface on it until we get into it because I think it will be more funny when we get into there because you guys know some of my tells on that already and I don't want to give any of that away until we cover the albums but yes very familiar with all three of these artists um so want to clean the stacks let's do it let's clean it let's up clean the stacks drop the beat be mistaken with them statements that you make All right, before I get into my stuff, Josh, do you have any cleaning to do? No, I was flawless last week. Wow. <laughs> I thought that was you. I was like, somebody was flawless. I just wasn't sure who it was. 10 point, uh, the perfect 10. Like Stuck Nadia that landing, didn't you, Josh? Yep, 1966 in Montreal. Oh, for reference there for some of our older folks. All right. Well, Nine episodes in, I'm hitting the sweet spot. Well, since Josh is perfect, let's move on to Matt. Matt, do you have anything to clean? I, I just a couple of things. I was Go near perfect. I, I was going to bring up that I forgot to bring up last week when we were talking about the doors and waiting for the sun. I was surprised to he, to see that waiting for the sun was not on the album, the actual song. So 
I didn't know, John, if that came across in your research, if you found out why that might have been. You know, I don't know. And I remember thinking that as I was listening to it as well, that I, I, it was one of those cognitive dissonance things where I know there's a Doris song called Waiting for the Sun. And I know that we're covering the album Waiting for the Sun. And, I, you know, I don't know if I ever put two and two together, as crazy as it sounds, Matt, that the two were not linked. Well, uh, I, I anticipated I anticipated yeah. that you would not have known that because I'm mm-hmm. sure you would have covered it. So I looked it up real quick. <coughs> working on the song, but they didn't feel like it was I thought it was going to be something cooler. But it's basically that they were working on the song. It wasn't ready. They, it wasn't what they felt like was ready for the album. So they still kept tinkering away at it. And it finally made its way onto 1970s Morrison Hotel. So, mm. um but yeah, I, I, I knew it ended was... up on an album. I just couldn't remember which one. Yeah, so. it just yep. it wasn't ready yet. That was that was the simple answer. But um, uh, and then the other thing that I we we were talking about Uj Mutantes and how they might have been influenced by um, you know a number of different acts mm-hmm. in in Britain and the U.S. And we talked about the Beatles. Um, and just for reference, we were talking about what album was 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 out at the time that that there that the Uj Mutantes album came out. So it was essentially a cross between. I mean, because Uj Mutantes came out in June of 1968, and the the Beatles had Sgt. Pepper that came out in May of 67, and the Magical Mystery Tour of 60 uh, November of 67. Okay. The white the white album wasn't released until November of 68. So so this album came in between Magical Mystery Tour and the white album. So a lot of that reference that I think John, you were talking yeah. about how it sounded like the Sergeant Pepper era Beatles. It was very much, it sounded you know, like it was a influenced. year after that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It sounded like yeah. it was influenced by it, but it could magical mystery tour is actually not a bad corollary either in terms of what could have influenced it. It's a lot of the stuff that they were doing. Yep. I mean, it's mm-hmm. very similar to the stuff around Sergeant Pepper. So, um, mm-hmm. that, that, and then they were just a couple of months apart. So that, that makes sense. So and that, that is the rare, the rare instance where you didn't have to shoehorn the Beatles into a segment, Matt, where it actually fit organically. So yeah, it did. It mm-hmm. did. Well, that's just that, that, that you never. It's never forced. The Beatles always belong, right? So uh, <laughs> any anytime I shoehorn them in, they belong there. So <laughs> there we go. Well, Everyone, everyone's been influenced by the Beatles except Pharaoh Sanders. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and in Sir his case, Dolphy. And, and in his case, everyone was influenced in jazz backwards by John Coltrane, who in terms were you know influenced by you know what I mean. Like there's an influencer at every level and every generation I, in jazz. I think I Eric like Dolphy that. was influenced by the Beatles by thinking, let me do the exact opposite of everything <laughs> they did. What would the Beatles not like? Well, yeah, yeah exactly. Right. <laughs> Lennon probably would have liked it though. Let's, and let's, now, let's, let's now I'm going to make it a point to find something where Eric Dolphy says that he took something from the Beatles uh, or, yeah. or, or shit all over the Beatles. Revolution nine. Were, yeah. Probably. Yeah. It was, he was probably inspired by revolution nine. Yeah. Well, he Even was, though it he didn't was, come I, out yet. He, I think he was dead by the time Revolution yeah. 9 came out, right? So, yeah, I doubt he was influenced, but yeah. <laughs> he knew it was coming. Maybe he inspired he them from the grave. But, yeah. okay, well, well, it's funny that we were just talking about that because last week I was trying to describe like a literary illusion or something to describe someone who's everywhere to describe Carol King's songwriting because I feel like she's written a song on yeah. every album we've covered. And actually, ironically, this week, I believe she wrote songs on at least the Dusty Springfield album this week as well. So each week yes, I feel multiple. like, yeah, and I feel like she's, and I was trying to find the word and I, and so I, I basically was told, uh, John, what you're looking for is ubiquitous. And that is correct. Ubiquitous yeah. is the word that I was looking for. She is ubiquitous. I think she collaborated with Sid Barrett too. So 
Uh, yeah, I, I actually, I think you're wrong, but I, but you know what I mean? <laughs> oh, I could be. Yeah, but, but we'll check it just in case. So knowing our luck, Carol King does have a Sid Barrett song. Who knows? Because like I said, she's ubiquitous. Uh, the other thing, and you guys are going to be really excited about this. Combing the Stack super fan Steve, who also is a member of uh, all of our fantasy football league as well. So shout out to Steve. Guess what Steve was able to share with us, guys? You'll be excited about this. Moog synthesizers, ready for this, run for yes. about $450. And okay. you know who owns a Moog synthesizer? Steve? I wish. That would be even better, wouldn't it? <laughs> Paige McConnell from the band Fish owns oh, a Moog yes. synthesizer. Uh, and they I'm utilize the Moog synthesizer to this day in terms of music that they create. So we were talking about, is it still in use? Yes, at least in in terms of if you consider Fish to be an active band or a tribute band that's been playing for 35 years, as I do. But still, that's active. You know, they're still playing. But, um, but yes, they have a Moog synthesizer. Paige McConnell owns McConnell's one. got quite the setup there. He's just surrounded in all kinds of keys. So it, I, I'm sure it's buried in there somewhere, but that makes sense. So now it's we just very, have to figure out. Yeah. Go ahead. I don't know how. I think it's pretty large, some of the and, original ones. I think that's how it was at any like electronics, right? Back then, yeah. like personal computers yeah. or everything. It, and we're going to talk about the Who today. And if you look at their Marshall stacks, they're just freaking gigantic. They look like a wall and like an Orwell novel, you know, Orwell novel where like they're blasting out propaganda. Like that's what the Who stacks look like at that time for a visual to give you an idea. But Can I'm, I just say I'm I'm surprised a Moog synthesizer isn't more expensive. I would have thought it would have been like at least a grand. It probably was like. Back in the day, if you take in inflation, into, I bet you it was four fifty back in the day, and it's four fifty now. Which of like course, CDs yeah. were always nineteen ninety nine. Exactly, because <laughs> yeah, exactly. it just yeah they they became more ubiquitous, Matt, and that's right. Result, their their uh, their um, cost went down. Yeah, so that that could be the case. But so we could keep going with it. But I did promise yeah. Steve that if he shared with us. He is a fan of the Werefox references, so we may have to put a, a Werefox sound effect in there if we discuss Steve in the future. So I'm going to try to get that on there for him this week. So Josh and I could play around with that to add a, a fox how, perhaps, sure, to indicate Steve's presence. Like, like, <laughs> like in Twin Peaks, <laughs> Black Lodge. <laughs> like so. we'll just insert it randomly. We'll be, uh oh, it's the Werefox. <laughs> yes, <laughs> Steve has something to say. How you know something like that. So. <laughs> Anyway, that was werewolf, I guess. But anyway, so I guess the next thing would be to figure out who modern in modern music is playing the electric jug. And so I throw that out there to our loyal listeners who in terms of active bands is still playing an electric jug. And it, you can't be like a 60s band or an early 70s band that's right. you know, basically doing their stuff. It has to be someone making modern music. So that is our next challenge. So there you go. I thought you guys would enjoy the fact that Moog synthesizer feedback did come in. I hope yeah. there's nobody playing the electric jug. Uh, yeah, yeah, no thirteenth, no thirteenth floor elevator cover bands, please. I, I hope know. everyone fails in that assignment. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we we shall see. So, all right, do you think it's time to get to the albums? Let's do it. Yes, I think Let's so too. So, in the opening montage, you will hear huh, one of the most famous songs of the 1960s, "My Generation" by the Who. And uh, in terms of opening up this segment. I believe we're going to start with The Kids Are All Right. Well, the kids are all right. 
okay. And we are back. That was a little bit of a snippet from The Kids Are All Right, another one of the singles from this album. And we're on The Who. And uh, I have to give my first tell right now. I am a super fan of The Who. Um, maybe not my favorite, favorite band of all time, but if I were sketching out a list of my top 10, um, The Who would definitely be on there. Uh, I might not be the enthusiast for The Who that, that Matt is for The Beatles, but I certainly like them quite a bit. And uh, so I was very happy to get The Who in uh, the drawing that we had for covering segments. This is The Who's first studio album. So because we're going to be covering them quite a bit in both the 60s and the 70s, I'm going to kind of get some of this stuff out of the way so that in the future we don't have to go through the initial bio of The Who. So if you guys don't mind, I'll start running through the bio and feel free to jump in if you have questions, all right? And I'm going to kind of do this as a bullet points uh, type deal. So The Who, I think each of... Unlike most bands, I think each member of The Who is pretty well known by music fans and there isn't a person who is the random member of the band, right? I mean, maybe John, S John Entwistle on bass is kind of the obscure member, but certainly Keith Moon on the drums, Peter Townsend on the guitar and Roger Daltrey on vocals are pretty well-known entities um, as individuals. Am I extrapolating a little bit too much there guys were you familiar with the various members of the band or did a couple band members not come across your consciousness i would agree with that i think you know keith moon heard about for many years townsend and daltrey are still going you know you, mm -hmm. even people that right. just don't know much about them they're still seeing them play the super bowl um you know, Jet Whistle, I probably would agree with you, but I think a lot of people still know who he is. So if you're going to pick somebody that might be a quote unquote rando, it would be him. But uh, that's a, I think that's still a little bit of a stretch, but it, it would be him if anybody. Mm -hmm. Sure. How about you, yeah. Josh? Yeah, I agree. I think I would have been able to name three of the four. Off three of the four. Gotcha. OK, so so here's the basics on The Who formed in London in 1964 um, as The Who band uh before that three of them were playing together um in a band called the detours um that was daltrey townsend and uh entwistle were playing together uh one of the things that's really interesting about the who is that uh peter townsend roger daltrey and um john entwistle all grew up in the same town acton london i shouldn't say they all grew up uh, Entwistle and Townsend grew up in it and Daltrey moved into the town. So they're actually all in high school together at the same time. But only Entwistle and Townsend really know each other. Um, they become friends and actually start a jazz group in high school. That's their first mm -hmm. love. Daltrey, on the other hand, is kind of like the rebel of the group. And he starts a band uh, called The Detours after being kicked out of high school. So um, it's kind of funny how the it's kind of funny how the Who's narrative and how it changes, right? That Roger Daltrey becomes sort of like the sober you know calm like you know pres uh, you know mature presence later because early he's like the fiery you know <laughs> all of the who have very interesting personalities as we'll talk about but daltrey is the most explosive early any uh any indication as to what got him kicked out of school john i didn't i didn't get the exact of it but i i, I they basically kind of described him almost the way that you would feel like someone would describe James Dean in a movie. Like he's just like wearing leather jackets and smoking behind the school and just constantly getting in trouble. He apparently had a huge temper and was a big fighter kind of a little bit like how they described David Bowie actually, but you know, Daltrey's a little bit more of a physical presence, you know? So I just think he, you know, he, you know, they all grew up blue collar 
And so adultery, I just think pushed it a little bit, you know, more and got booted out. So, so yeah, so they, they, um, Entwistle and Townsend know each other. Daltrey, you know, is at the same school, but he doesn't, he doesn't know them. So he starts the detours. So very long story short, you know, as this band is going on, he sees John Entwistle just carrying a base and a base, uh, case on the street and he you know strikes up a conversation and basically invites him to join the band after hearing a little bit about how he plays the bass and then as they're playing together very shortly Entwistle suggests his friend Peter Townsend who plays guitar and suddenly you've got yourself a band Uh, the only piece missing is Keith Moon Um, they uh, I think a thing to know about this time of the who is is they much like the Beatles or the Stones or a lot of these bands in Britain at the time, that 1961 to 1964 period, they're largely just a cover band that's playing covers of R&B and blues and stuff like that. So similar narrative to the Beatles and the Stones. Uh, one of the big splits in the group early is that Daltrey would have been happy just continuing on with that model. It's working real well. He thinks they're good at it. They're making you know, good money you know, for early 20 year old folks. Um, and also it's, you know, popular with the ladies and Daltrey's, you know, a ladies man. So yeah, sure was, he sure was. And, you know, there's a description that like on tour that when they would go on tour, John Entwistle's son, I believe said, you know, Keith Moon would basically just go looking for trouble. John Entwistle would tinker with things. Pete Townsend would go write music and John uh, Peter Daltrey would just shag a, a different woman every night, and Roger that was sort Daltrey, of yeah. like Roger Daltrey, excuse me, and that was sort of like their mo, like rinse so and repeat. John mm-hmm. was Roger Daltrey the one of the, the member of the band who had the sex mansion. I, you know, I don't get the feeling that Roger Daltrey was a sex mansion type guy. He strikes me more as like a take you to dinner, you know, get it done, and then go to bed early because they always talk about him. Going to bed early while Keith Moon and John Entwistle are like blowing up toilets with firecrackers, you know, so that's kind of, you know, because the mayhem on tour that becomes well known with with hair bands and 70s bands and stuff, the who are kind of like originators of that destruction uh, of hotels and things along that. And also just even the idea of what's called auto destructive art, which is destroying your instruments on the stage one of the things that even people that don't know the who very well, I think know about them is that at the end of their set, they would pretty much destroy their instruments. Um, Auto-destructive art. Auto-destructive art, not to be confused with auto-erotic asphyxiation, Matt, if you're confusing (laughs) those two things. So I want, yeah, that that, that makes a lot more sense. Mm -hmm. Thanks for for clarifying. When we get to the in excess album in the eighties, we'll talk about that a little bit more, I think too. Oh man. Sorry. (laughs) Sorry. That's deep cut right there. But, uh, so anyway, um, it's, it's kind of hard to, to narrow the who down because there's so much stuff going on, but they're basically playing these R and B and blues stuff. They decide that Daltrey would love to keep doing it, but, Pete Townsend in particular, but Ed Whistle as well, um, wants to start doing their own music. Um, as this is going on, The Who uh, finds out about Keith Moon, who's basically been drumming in band since 1961. And they listen to him and they say, yeah, he's pretty damn good, which is understatement of the year right there as a guy who uh, you know, has played the drums before and can appreciate what Keith Moon does. So they add him. They also hire a manager by the name of uh, Peter Meaden, who decides to make a very fateful decision, which is that he decides to make them the poster children for the mod movement in England. 
So now we get into kind of like last week when Matt talked about the idea of Ush Mutantes and the Tropicalia movement. Early Who is very difficult to uncouple from the mod movement in Britain. Uh, yeah, even on the album cover, yep. they kind of look mod. And, and, and mod is one of those things that's extremely difficult to explain what it is because it's both everything and nothing at the same time. And even just describing it is going to sound funny because it doesn't, it's not going to sound like it's a real thing that actually existed. But how, are you guys familiar with the mod movement at all? Yeah, just through like movies. I, I know like kind of the mod scene through fashion mm-hmm. and stuff in, in movies. How about you, Matt? Not, I mean, I know, I know there were the mods and the rockers. Yep. And mm-hmm. the, uh, and then there was the famous line in uh, Hard Day's Night, Beatles, mm-hmm. where they asked somebody, a reporter asked John Lennon, "Are you a mod or a rocker?" And he goes, "I'm a mocker." Yeah. So well, I, and I don't really. To me, the Beatles are detached from both of those definitions, as we'll talk about in a second. But anyway, the 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 who are tied to this mod movement. And I, I always think of the mod movement as like Austin Powers. <laughs> it's kind of mm-hmm. like what reminds me of the mod movement a little bit. Like that's kind of what the, you know, the ethos he's going for. I guess the best way to describe mod is this. It starts out with folks that were listening to modern jazz. So a lot of the stuff actually we've been covering in the early 60s uh, wore their hair in the traditional long hair style and were influenced by fashion, especially Italian style clothes, sort of tight fitting stylish clothes. With uh, and a love of French and Italian art films. The folks mm-hmm. were usually blue collar in background, but they were almost going for these pretentious, ostentatious type things to sort of skewer or satire in a way, like the world, but also they did like these things. Um, so it's kind of like a parody of uh, upper class blue collar society, is how it was described. Mm-hmm. Um, other things that are a part of the mod scene are scooters, um, R&B music from America, and amphetamines, <laughs> which is something that most what of a the, combination. <laughs> I'd say most of the who loved. They also spent a ton of time in coffee shops mods because coffee shops were uh, open later than bars. In uh, it's actually the opposite in America, right? You know, bars are open later than coffee shops in, in england it was the opposite the bars closed early and the coffee shops would stay open and as matt mentioned there was a war between the mods and the rockers which sounds almost like something out of like a bad west side story like parody and the rockers uh who they had a rivalry with favored rockabilly music from america along with early rock and roll motorcycles and leather jackets and there definitely was a streak where the rockers considered the mods to be more effeminate uh, than they yeah, who so, are the more masculine. It's all those Italian clothes. Yeah. So the mods are kind of like British hipsters in a little bit. I, I think, like. yeah, that could be the, the spiritual predecessor, yes, of the, of Wait, the British were the hipster. scooter, like, what kind of scooters? Like, like motors, like, motorized yeah, scooters? Yeah, like the Vespas. Like, yep. from like Italian Vespas. films okay. and stuff, I bet. Yeah. Yep, gotcha. it's, it's exactly right. Yep. It's and, and like I said, they just... For whatever reason, it was just a mishmash of things that got put together. The haircut, there's... It's hard to describe the... Mar- the mod haircut it's just think beatles coming to america you know early who on the cover of this you know that like 1963 to 1965 long hair not like flowing down your back long hair but long in terms of the era right kind of over your ears yeah exactly Mm -hmm. um one thing and i know matt will be really excited about this josh will as well but for real reasons matt lesta um the uh the mods you know who they were uh strongly influenced by 
is the rude boy culture of Jamaica. All right. And rude boy culture, I know Josh knows this. Matt, which uh, music is the rude boy culture aff- uh, affiliated with? Is that like DMX or something? <laughs> Not DMX. You wish. No, it would be a first-generation ska, uh, which also includes Rocksteady. So the first-generation Desmond Decker, Scottalites era ska was highly influential uh, in the look of the mods. It's not the exact same, but the, the rude boys would wear the, the suits and the bow ties and uh, the pork pie hat type deal. Um, and, you know, those folks, obviously the style and a lot of it would be influential in two-tone ska, which would come later in the late 70s in England uh, when it moved over to England. So the mods also are spiritual successors to that movement of ska in the late 70s. Um, also, the who are considered to be forerunners in any number of groups and unlike a lot of people who it's hard to draw you know they'll be credited as being a seminal influence in groups i I do think it's very fair to say that the who are are definitely forefathers of punk and uh pop art and and things along those lines because you it's hard to, to not hear elements of what the who are doing even in this album and especially british punk in the mid to late 70s, uh, there is a direct line you can draw. Um, I would also say there's a fair amount of art rock. You know, the Who got to concert mm-hmm. albums and stuff like that. They may not have been the first, right? We talked about SF Sorrow being there, but the Who really leaned into that uh, along with the Kinks very early. Um, another thing that's the Who are the at the forefront of lots of different stuff. They are the first to use the Marshall stack, which is the, the black uh, speakers on top of each other to amplify sound. They use PA systems before everybody. They're one of the first people to use the synthesizers, one of the first to use feedback, and certainly one of the first popular bands to use power chord. Uh, And I actually, on the Combing the page, I put up an example of what a power chord sounds like. But if you're a metalhead, like you can thank the Who for being amongst the first to play power chords um, because they're they're kind of a, a... you can't play metal without playing power chords and for that matter punk really either um a power chord for those that are music fans is when you play the root the root note and the fifth along with octave sometimes of those notes and you play them together and string them together and that's power chords also called bar bar chords because when you play them on the guitar you're using your index finger and you're barring an entire fret so you're you're basically um making the sound making the pitch higher altogether and then you're using your other three three fingers to play the actual chord so it's a way that you're really strumming all the strings and it's it's a yeah like you said john it's a it's a more powerful sound than just a regular chord yeah one thousand percent matt thanks for for filling that in and you know also the townsend breaking his guitar at the end of the set and doing the windmill move that people imitate. That was the so badass. <laughs> Daltrey with the shirt open and the mic whip. That was them. God, he was so hot. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and then Keith Moon would do the thing where he'd throw his drumstick up mid beat and catch it and play. Uh, those are all things that the who originated, or at least were the first major artists to do all of those things. So the who were in terms of the presentation of rock were an act that was hugely influential. Um, so it's, I could almost stop there because there's a a lot to go. I do want to tell two quick things real quick before we move in, um, it move into the album. It's pretty well known that all of the members of the who really 
didn't like each other very much. At the beginning, Entwistle and Townsend were friends, but they'd kind of gravitated out of being friends when they were in the group. Uh, during the time of the band, Keith Moon and John Entwistle were friends for most of the time, but then um, Entwistle gets married and that kind of alienates Keith Moon. Uh, and a lot of their shared uh, shared exploits are basically because they both love to drink and use amphetamines. So that was there. Uh, Daltrey didn't really get along with any members of the group. Now, he and Townsend have reconciled in past years, especially after the death of Entwistle. That, that caused Townsend to reach out to Daltrey and create a relationship. And they actually get along very well now. But most people know the who constantly were fighting with each other, including fist fights. There's at least three major fights between members of the band. Daltrey assaults Keith Moon in Denmark after a show one time, uh, which almost leads to Daltrey being kicked out of the band. They finally decide to have a vote where Daltrey is allowed to stay in the band. This is right around the time this album's being made, by the way, uh, that this is happening. There's another time where Pete Townsend also assaults Keith Moon. Seems to be a a, a, <laughs> a, a, a trend, but basically the the Who the Who were a very explosive band filled with very different personalities. And I know you can say that about most bands, but the Who in particular are four very different human beings in a band who I think just all appreciate that they, you know, they they can really play. And to me, that is what makes the Who the Who is that everybody in this band can play their instrument or do what they're supposed to do. Um, you could make an argument that, you know, Keith Moon is one of the best drummers of all time. John Entwistle is one of the best bassists of all time. Daltrey certainly is what you look for in a lead singer. And Townsend is an excellent rock lead guitarist. Um, and yeah, there's some other stuff I can get into, but I'm going to kind of leave it alone because I've talked a lot right now and I normally don't like to go this long. First album, uh, I don't know how familiar you guys are with the Who's catalog. It is varied, and they sound different. Uh, maybe, Josh, let's start with you. What you, would you think of this album? I really like this album, and I had not heard it before. I think I had maybe knew one of the songs or two of the songs. Um, but it's, yeah, I definitely knew my generation, and kids are all right. But mm -hmm. um, it's such a promising start to a band this album is so catchy uh the choruses are like are really great and had me singing along um i really uh i really like their original material uh more than their covers because they they you know as we've seen with a lot of these bands they're doing and like you said you know they were a cover band so they're putting covers in their albums like the beatles did and and um, some of the other bands as well and but i don't uh they didn't sound, they sounded good too, but they, they weren't like the standouts to me. I, I really liked um, their original songs on this, um, well, you know, like the good, the good's gone and much too much. It's not true. Those are all like really catchy. Um, well, Daltrey, uh, Daltrey was the only one who didn't agree with you, including the record company <laughs> and the other members of the band. Daltrey was the only one carrying the torch for including those covers. And after this the album, covers. the covers go away quickly and they become an original band. Yeah, they can't be right about everything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, you get to, I feel like it's so, um, it's a pretty well-produced album because I feel like the drums are really prominent and you can hear those and they don't overpower the other instruments, but they're, they're noticeable. Um, I, sh I should mention, Josh, that one of the hallmarks of The Who is that the rhythm section 
is placed in the front of all who albums so okay and so that is that's a sig- that. yep that is a signature part of it's part of the reason why i love the who so much is that they put bass lines and drums front and center in a way that very few bands especially bands in the 60s did so they will mm-hmm. often layer and produce and even create songs where the bass lines um and the drums are front and center um and that goes yeah. on throughout the 70s as well yeah and that makes sense because mm-hmm. that's what stood out for me on the listen throughs and um i I really, I really even like the, the the instrumental track at the end because everyone kind of got a solo, mm-hmm. um, and of course I'm a little biased because as you know, as we've discussed in the podcast, I like the kind of rock music more, um, the strong you know bass lines and things like that, and the who are like you know front and center of that type of music. So, but um, I can see from this album where they go mm-hmm. if they're not you know obviously they're not there yet but it's it's a great um first album gotcha well are you saying the who have a solid rhythm section josh is that what you're inferring right there with <laughs> ant whistle and moon yeah. yes yes <laughs> yeah they're not bad they, they can play their instruments a little bit so how about you matt so my familiarity is very similar to josh's i knew the singles um because that's because the albums that I've owned of The Who, I had a Greatest Hits, I had Tommy, and I had Who's Next. And that's really... Wow, okay. So, so, so there's a lot of new stuff on here for me. Um, and I didn't realize that this was their debut album until just a, a, two minutes ago when I just clicked on the Wikipedia thing to see, <laughs> oh, that is the debut album. So um, this was great. This was a lot of fun to listen to. And, and, and yes to everything you're saying about the drums and the bass and and to me that's what really stood out the bass in particular Mm -hmm. it's heavy it is a heavy Mm -hmm. heavy it's like and i can only imagine what this has got to sound like in 1965 you know because this is not 64 or 64 Uh, but it's it's released in 65 but they're playing most of the 64 Mm -hmm. right so so i know that a lot of this stuff is it's it's not true in terms of the structures of the songs they're fairly straightforward blues rock, um, you know, yeah. R and B stuff, but it's it's the sound, it's the, how they do it, it's how they make the sound, and and songs like, holy shit, the good is gone, the good's mm-hmm. gone. How have I mm-hmm. never heard that song before? That was fantastic. I don't know. That was, that's my favorite song on the album. I like that better than the singles. You know, like that. I was just, I was totally taken in by that. Um, and that, I think that's the longest song in the album. And I was, and I just thought I could listen to that for another four minutes. That is just so, it, 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 and I knew that Ent Whistle and Moon, you know, are fantastic. I've, and probably I've been more familiar or I, I've had more, um, more of an acknowledgement of Moon's contributions. I've been able to pay attention to him more. Um, but this, something about this is just like, I really, I, Ent Whistle was my favorite part of this album. Um, and just how it was just, and it was one song after the other, you know, just being that driving bass first mm-hmm. and foremost, right in your face. Um, and then everything else around it was just, you know, solidifying um, the sound that the Who really made. Um, I think I would say that I really, I think I enjoyed the first side of this record better. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that was a stronger side than the, than the second side. I, the, the, I agree with Josh, the covers, it was interesting because, um, when I was listening to it, you know, I, I noticed that right away. The second song is like a James Brown cover, right? I don't mind. And, mm-hmm. and as soon as they played it, I was thinking, you know, this doesn't, I never really 
remember the who doing songs like this and my wife made the same comment she said i didn't know the who did stuff like that so that was kind of an interesting um you know take on the with with, with that song um i'm a man i i wasn't a huge fan of that at least in the beginning like that traditional like it's i get it it's like a fun foundational part of rock but I, that's not the usually type of blues. I don't really like that part of the blues, but I think they picked it up later because they started jamming out a little bit more later on, and I, what I liked, and I liked that a lot. But this was a very fun listen, um, and I really got to appreciate even more that that rhythm section, the bass in particular. But then Moon going nuts. He's he. I think he's the best drummer ever. I don't think it's. I don't think it's. Well, I mean, I guess you he's, in the, here, he's, so in the, he's in the he's in the he's in the discussion. I'd say it's probably between one of those two guys, but, um, and I would say the other thing, the other thing I would say is I am, I guess I'm not a huge fan of Townsend's vocals. Um, I don't think he's got a particularly strong voice. I don't think it's terrible. Well, you'll like later, um, you'll like later who albums. Cause basically Daltrey and occasionally Entwistle do most of the singing. Townsend right. does more on the early albums than the later albums. And he only had one, one song here really. And that's what I was going to ask John is because Townsend's writing, pretty much all of their original songs Mm -hmm. so how do they decide hey for legal matter let's have pete sing this because so that's not a song it's not like roger daltrey couldn't have sang that right you know well all the all the blues covers in this are you know all the covers are basically daltrey because that's what he loves right and when they were doing their other when they were a cover band basically daltrey was doing all of the singing at that point ent whistle comes to singing later and pretty steadily on and you know how we always joke the Beatles, you know, Ringo sings one song on every album. The equivalent of it is, is John Entwistle does about two songs every album for The Who uh, going forward that he sings. And he often sings the, the sort of the more oddball tracks. Like, I don't Boris know if you're familiar. The Boris the Spider is a good example of like, a, yes, of, of a John Entwistle sung track. Um, but there's others. And he actually pops up even on the concept albums like Quadrophini and Tommy. He's there. Uh, the Townsend songs, I, I've always heard that they were the songs that Pete Townsend, when he wrote them, felt that they were in his voice. But then you have things like, you know, Touch Me, you know, on Tommy, that is very personal, right? That he lets, you know, Roger Daltrey sing at times so i don't know what it is i think it's pete townsend the composition is clearly what pete townsend likes the best he also loves playing the guitar uh but they they definitely looked at roger daltrey as their front man but uh i think it's just certain songs pete townsend felt yeah were better for him not many but some and then a lot of times the john and whistle songs were songs that he had a bigger piece in helping to write so that's well, how he, up- yeah yeah, if I'm not mistaken, I think Legal Matter was the only song that, that anybody but Daltrey took lead on. Yes. In this album. Yep. So I just thought that was interesting because I was like, oh, okay. Because you could hear Townsend do some harmonies in some other songs. He's um, always harmonizing. Yeah. So like he'll sing his harmony, yes. but he's Which is yeah. fine. But then when he, t- when he takes the lead, I was yeah. just going, yeah, it's, it's, I, Daltrey, I think, would have done that better. Once um, again, I, I think the Who agree with you. Uh, that's one yeah. thing that I think the, I think the Who very much knew – what they did well and what they didn't do well. Um, and, you know, they, they tried different stuff and occasionally mm-hmm. they, they stretched out of it. But the Who were a band that I think always knew they were better as a band. They did their own projects, but they very much identified them as side projects and they did not want them to be seen as Who projects. And I think the thing that binded them together was the fact that they were very, very well aware of the fact that, you know, as a, as a set of musicians, they just 
they not many people could play guitar like Pete Townsend does, where he's you still know Pete Townsend's there and appreciate it, but he can be in the background, right? It's hard to be a strong guitarist and also be in the second layer behind a you know, my generation has a bass solo, right? How often do you hear a bass solo in a, in yeah. a mainstream rock song? You know, uh, you know, Keith Moon, the way he drums is a very different style. Like, I don't know how much you guys know about drumming, but I can fill it in a little bit. But what, what would you guys say? And I think this is like as you list, as you try to describe it to someone, I can describe it. But what, what would you guys say is about Keith Moon's drumming that stands out to you? Because he's an atypical drummer in some ways. I would, the first thing that I, it's fast, mm-hmm. right? And it's, and, and I don't know enough about the drum setup or anything like that, but he's hitting a lot of different drums, you know, and it seems like it's just going at a torrential pace. What does he so, not hit? Notably, symbols? he does not hit the hi hat ever, which yeah. is one thing that's oh. a, it's a signature of Keith Moon is he doesn't <laughs> hit the hi hat. Let me ask you this. Even mm-hmm. if he did, would you be able to hear it amongst all the other well, stuff? Well, yeah. I mean, he, he plays rapidly <laughs> fast. The other thing that Keith Moon's known for is his fills. I mean, his fills yes. are explosively fast. And also, he hits the drum kit hard. Sometimes, yeah. you know, people are great drummers, but they – even like a guy like Neil Pert, right, who, who Matt mentioned before, he can play the drum soft. Um, you know, uh, Mitch Mitchell, another drummer I love from the, the Jimi Hendrix experience – He's a jazz background, so he could do it. Keith Moon is always playing the drums yeah. hard. John Edwistle plays the bass hard. You know, that's the first thing you notice. Yeah, it's um, it, he's he's great. And those fills that he does, mm-hmm. it's not even in traditional, just in traditional nope. places. He'll just throw it in whenever he, it's almost like whenever he feels like it. You know, you'll just hear these drum parts that are like, whoa, whoa, what, where'd that come from? You know, and it, then he's back to the regular you know, drumming pattern, but uh, no, he's great. Every time I hear him, I'm just like, this guy's insane. Yep. So, um, and I, I think we're almost at the end of the road right there. Cause we'll talk about the who so much. Um, and there's so much more to tell about the band. I will say as a, as a parting shot though, it's hard to overstate how heavy this album was considered when yeah. it was being made in 1964 and then released in 65. And, and Matt is correct. This was released actually at the end of 65, um, but it, they were playing material on this in 64 and, you know, throughout 65. So people were hearing them, you know, blasting music through the Marshall stacks and PA systems, you know, just playing their instruments as hard as humanly possible. The way that the, the Who Do Blues covers is totally different than when you hear the Stones or the Beatles do blues covers. You know, Roger Daltrey sings the songs very, very differently than many of the British bands do. Um, And I've always actually considered the Who and the Kinks to in some ways be cousins because they go through all of these different incarnations of sounding like Mm. uh, different bands at different times. And I think there's a lot of people who may have no idea this era of the Who exists, even though it was incredibly popular but will absolutely know mid-70s you know stadium rock who you know mm-hmm. baba o'reilly won't get fooled again which you can see you know keith moon's drum fills and john at whistles bass up front but you know daltrey changes his singing style toward the end of the 60s to get that more anthemic style and and but you can always see the the underlying the premise of the who is always for people that that can play their instrument or do their part in the band at, i won't say a virtuoso level but at a level that stands out and you just don't find many bands that have you know a, 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 i would argue that everybody in the who is at least an a at what they do you know daltrey to me is an a lead singer 
Keith Moon's an A plus drummer. John Entwistle's an A plus, you know, bassist, and Townsend's an A guitarist. You know, there isn't yeah. a weak link in the band. No, there's not. Yeah, and I, I think I also know why you like them. I heard some jangle pop, John, and the kids are all right. Oh, definitely. So I, th- I think he's got some of that going on too. They influenced uh, pop. You can easily see how they influenced punk, a little bit of jangle, mm-hmm. art rock. And, and it's not like trying to force it either. You can see the, the deconstruction of blues and R&B and how they're playing the instruments differently. The stagecraft, every cliche, not every, a lot of cliches, you know, of rock bands came from the who doing it first when it wasn't a cliche, you know. So I don't right. mean to just continue to, to uh, you know, just bestow praise on them but uh this out they, they'd make better they'd make better albums than this but this album's to me a, an easy recommend it's pretty damn good first start yep yeah oh i i also like to add that i like the stuttering in my generation i think that's a pretty clever uh do you know what that's designed to, to do you know what that's designed to imitate no what a a mod on uh crank on methamphetamine oh. <laughs> on, uh, that's basically what it's so or uh it's it, some people think it's methamphetamine some people think it's amphetamines but uh same basic premise right but that's it's supposed to sound like someone who's just taken the drug and can't speak and they actually wow. consciously went for that yep cool so well, it's, it's certainly it unique this. so it stood out mm-hmm. so uh and and last thing uh two session musicians on this uh the very famous pianist nikki hopkins uh who will show up a lot in albums that we'll talk about. Uh, and Jimmy Page, believe it or not, a young Jimmy Page is a session guitarist on this. And I put wow. in my notes, yes, that one. Uh, he is playing in the background. And actually, it's funny because I'm not sure if you stumbled across it, Josh, but Dusty Springfield and uh, Jimmy Page and his group have a little bit of a tie, too, that I can add if you didn't happen to stumble across that. Oh, I didn't read about that. I have a different... Um different gotcha. connection to another band. that's a different dusty springfield job <laughs> well, well so we'll I'll, I'll add that in at the end to tie it all together but yeah. let's go ahead and put a bow on the who we'll talk about them plenty but pretty 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 pretty, pretty damn good album right here yeah go start. freaking go freaking listen to the goods gone if you've never heard that holy crap that's a freaking and, great song and turn it up yeah yeah exactly to 11 people 11. know the singles i'd also i i think out in the street is a is a wonderful song that gives you a feel of what the who are like um, I think their cover of Much Too Much is really good. And uh, I do love uh, It's Not True as a deep cut if you want one. So all of those are great things. Every, I, just about everybody, I think, knows That's my like generation. It's a punk song, I think, almost. It's, it's a very big yeah. forerunner to what punk would become. And when you figure that that music was being created in you know the mid-1970s, 76, 77, and they were releasing this in 1965, it's it's kind of jarring to hear because you're like, wow, okay, now I know why the Sex Pistols and you know the Ramones that everybody worship at the altar of the who because yeah that clash as well you know it's it's you can tell so yep all right so now let's turn it over to josh and let's talk about dusty definitely dusty so the song in the opening montage was breakfast in bed Mm -hmm. and one of my favorites Mm -hmm. off this album and the next song you're gonna hear is the uh classic son of a preacher man the only one who could ever reach me was the son of a preacher man the only boy who could ever teach me was the son of a preacher man you see what he was yes he was all right we're back 
So Dusty Springfield, uh, this album is called Dusty in Memphis, and it is from 1969. This is her fifth studio album. It was recorded in American Sound Studio in Memphis. It was released January 18th, 1969 by Atlantic Records, which is the same label as Aretha Franklin. And that's a, a important connection that I will talk about in a little bit. Uh, Jerry Wexler was uh, was the produ- producer of this album, um, which is also tied to all the, uh, Aretha Franklin and, and many of the other acts that he was involved in while at Atlantic. Um, and the backing vocals on this um, album were also uh, were again by the Sweet Inspirations, which was was the backing group for Aretha as well. The house musicians were the Memphis Cats, led by Reggie Young and Tommy Cogbill. Um, and other other uh, important note on this album is that a lot of notable songwriters wrote on this album, including uh, Jerry, Gary Geffen and Carol King um, for four songs. And we talked about them before. Uh, Barry Mann and Cynthia Wheel, which were a husband and wife uh, writing duo. Randy, a young Randy Newman uh, wrote songs on this album. Uh, Burke Backrat and Hal David, which were another famous songwriting duo that um, Dusty had worked with previously. Uh, and Michael Legrand, who wrote the, he's a French, uh, uh, French uh, writer who, songwriter who wrote the Windmills on Your Mind, uh, Windmills of Your Mind, which actually won an Oscar um, as well for best song. What movie? Um, uh, is the title track to, oh, crap, I'm drawing a blank. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll think of it. Let me. <laughs> All right. Sorry. I just, was just curious. Yeah. Um, and let's see. So this was her first album with Atlantic Records, and she chose to go there because Aretha was one of her idols. Um, she was coming off of a, a fallow period in her in her um, career, and she was trying to make a, a statement comeback. Um, up until this point she had never done an album entirely of R&B songs. Um, she had also never recorded an album outside of the UK up to this point. I should add that Dusty is, is a Brit, um, if you didn't know that. And she, um, so that's why she had never got recorded outside of Britain. Um, she had some anxiety during the production of this album due to, due to her being anxious about being compared to great R&B singers, you know, such as Aretha. Um, she was also used to having a lot of production control on her albums. Um, she was often um, completely in charge of her, the production on her albums and not credited as such. Um, so she had to give up that control when she came to Atlantic. Um, in fact, she was so kind of anxious about recording this album. Um, she later re-recorded her vocals in New York City to put on the album. Also during the recording of this album, she suggested Atlantic should sign Led Zeppelin as she knew John Paul Jones and he had played bass in, uh, for her. That was what I was going to say. Her, wow. Yeah, during yeah. her uh, um, shows and Atlantic <sighs> signed them basically on her advice alone without even seeing them for $200,000, which was the largest amount for a new band at that time. That That's, is an amazing trivia fact. Right so if there. you like Zeppelin, thank Dusty. Yeah, wow. thank Dusty. Um, she, not only that, she she's considered important 
um, not only because she was extremely popular, and I'll get to that um, throughout the 60s, and, and she had a long career all the way through up until her, you know, death in 1999. Um, and, uh, but she had hits in the 80s, and, and um, actually I listened to, uh, uh, she worked with Pet Shop Boys on a on track, which was actually pretty catchy in the 80s. Really good songs. Really good yeah, songs. Yeah, she, yep. she was continually working even after this period. She was inspired by uh, Motown and R&B. Um, her, her output, I was actually going to start about the production of this album and then backtrack and give a little bit of history after we talk about it. Um, her output from 63 to 68 was a mix of girl pop groups and Blue-Eyed Soul. Uh, Blue-Eyed Soul just refers to R&B sung by white people. Mm-hmm. And by the time this album was being made, the music landscape had changed completely. Um, she had fallen out of fashion. Um, if you think of like early Motown and things like that, that's kind of more her, her um, style. And at this point, you know, the summer of love had already started um, uh, electric guitars and the psychedelic music that we have talked about and social commentary came into the music more uh, Motown had also been replaced by kind of a grittier soulful sound. So that's kind of where she was when this album came out. Um, we have already actually already heard, you know, multiple examples of these albums of this type of music uh, by the time 1969 rolls around. I actually went back and looked because I was curious, really only seven of the albums that we've discussed so far, not counting the albums this week were from 65 or before and that doesn't even include Rob, that doesn't include Robert Johnson, which is, you know, kind of an outlier. So most of what I'm saying is most of the music that we've heard so far has been front loaded from 65 and later. Um, so, so she's kind of at this point in 69, not considered, you know, at the forefront of what's fashionable. That's kind of where we are in her career. What did you guys think of this album? Oh, oh, like I freaking love this album. <laughs> I love Dusty Springfield in general. Blue Eyed Soul, like when I think of that, I think of her and Van Morrison are the two people I think of as like Blue Eyed Soul singers, right? But first of all, was it both you guys said you only knew the song Son of a Preacher Man, like from her output? I think there was other ones. I know there's other ones. You, you don't know. I don't know what it is that makes me love you so. I know that. Uh, yeah. I was about yeah. to, like, I, I, like, that's a seminal song from when I was like seven years old. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, I remember listening to that. Dude, I like this immediately. And that whole right. first album, by the way, of mostly covers and then that original one um, is mm-hmm. like, I remember listening to that when I was a kid at my grandfather's house constantly because it's just <laughs> filled. And I would argue that her cover of Mama Said... And then, as we talked about in the Supremes, uh, Matt, when the love light starts shining through his eyes are actually right. superior to the originals in many ways. So uh, then this this album is so it, it's I think the term for this album and I I didn't do any research. because I wanted to go. I know there's a term called torch songs and torch albums. Right. And this is like a torch concept album basically that's the whole idea of like you're carrying a torch for someone and it's mm-hmm. basically this is like a concept album of like a person that dusty springfield clearly loves and sometimes they love her back and sometimes they don't but it's just never gonna happen type deal and the the depth of the songs on this album are just fantastic the songwriting is wonderful um 
I just can't say enough about it. It's just such a such a good album. Like uh, the windmills of your mind, you know, it won the Oscar, like you said, for a song. It sounds like it could be in every Quentin Tarantino movie ever. Mm -hmm. Like basically it's, you know, when the reckoning is going to come, it's this sweet song, but also somber. Uh, Josh talked about breakfast in bed, which is basically like an ode to wanting someone to come over and spend time with you when, you know, you're they're taking advantage of you, but you don't really care. Um, just a, le a little loving is a great opening track. I, I, I don't really know what to say. Dusty Springfield's got incredible expressive voice. The compositions and the songwriting on this album are so tight. It's, it's an absolute testament to when you get a singer and the singer can sing songs from professional songwriters. I've never understood why some people don't like that setup because it's to me in many ways, it's great if you can play your own stuff, but man, if you have a gift and, and you find other experts to, to combine with, it's just like being in a band in some ways, you know what I mean? But instead of them playing the instruments, they're crafting the songs and then you're just belting it out. And that's what this is. It's master songwriters writing perfect songs in a different style. You still get that, that girl group, you know, cause Dusty Springfield early stuff is sort of like, that Motown girl group sound, but even like a fifties sort of vibe, you know, like the, you know, the, I have a crush on you type stuff vibe. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we talk Brenda Lee and stuff like that. She didn't do direct covers of that, but it has elements of that. And that's what she grew up listening to. So yeah. Uh, like yeah, Leslie Gore. kind Leslie of Leslie Gore. Yep. Is another perfect example. Yep. Um, uh, and, and for those that don't know Leslie Gore, <laughs> what's the most famous Leslie Gore song? It's oh, my geez. party. Yep. Yeah. And I'll cry. If I so there you go. Yep. Um, so yeah, I, I'll, I'll turn it over to Matt, but I, this is, this is at the top of very close to the top albums that we've listened to. It's right up there for me with the Nina Simone album and younger than yesterday by the birds. I, there's not much I can say, but just if you like R and B and soul, like it's a no brainer. And I don't think dusty Springfield and even you guys have verified this for me. I just don't know why she's not more talked about and popular because she's remarkable. The movie's so, called The Thomas Crown Affair. Oh, oh remake with Pierce Brosnan, right? Later, y yep, yeah. The original. Oh, okay, because I was going to say that she Steve she won the Oscar. They had the movie, the song in the movie for you know that wasn't that long ago. No, but <laughs> the original. I don't. I don't know. I'm not up on my movies. Um, so this is not something that I am typically listening to on any given day. My knowledge of this was just really Son of a Preacher Man, which I've always, I mean, from the, I think, speaking of Quentin Tarantino, that's the Pulp Fiction was the first time I ever heard that. Right. Um, and that's a, and I had that soundtrack and that was always a highlight of that. That's just a fantastic song. And I, I would say that's still the best song in the album for me. Um, so listening to this the first couple of times, I wouldn't say it wasn't, wasn't challenging or anything like that, but I was definitely a little off put by the production in the, it's it's again going back to that orchestration which is pretty much throughout most of the songs on this album that have that very it's 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 it sound it's like i equate it more with the 70s type sound than the 60s type sound um but i just it, it it's not the type of sound that i generally like right um mm -hmm. but the more i listen to this um uh, the more I appreciated it and more I started to really get to the point where I, I do like this. I, I'm not as effusive, certainly as, as much as John, as you are, but 
um, the, no, this is a good record. And I, I, the more I listened to it, the more I got past my reservations about that type of production and saw more into the songs themselves. And yeah, this is just a nice, like it's, it, it's a nice listen. It's very, it's kind of a good thing to listen to in the morning. Sometimes when I put music on, it's, it's, a, I'll, I'll put on anything. I'll put on something harder, like, like the who, or even harder than that. And sometimes my wife's a little bit like, can we have something a little lighter? And, uh, and so we play, I was playing this one morning. Said, this is much more like that. So I was like, yeah, this is kind of a nice, let's make some breakfast. And, you know, um, so, uh, no, I appreciate this. This was a nice little find for me. Um, I think standouts, you know, John, you mentioned the windmills of your mind. I think that that's kind of a little bit of a darker sound to it. Um, in the Spanish, it's almost like a Spanish guitar kind of a thing. So that's a little bit more of a standout, more of a unique song, but that I probably that the six, seven, eight combination of breakfast in bed, just one smile and the windmills of your mind in particular, um, were really uh stood out to me the chorus in just one smile is, is is fantastic and i like how in that song and a lot of the other songs you know it kind of starts off really kind of slow and quiet and then and then it, it there's a lot of building here right it's a lot of building mm -hmm. crescendos into into choruses that are very that are that are very lush that are very i, I don't want to say like boisterous because it's not like she's it's not like it's 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 overpowering it's it's a little bit subdued but it's still it's still a powerful type of sound. Um, and no, I, the more I listened to this, the more I appreciated it. And the more I was like, you know, I can, I can get down with this, you know, that production style of the, of the orchestration isn't so bothersome. And maybe it's one of those things where you just need to be exposed to something a little bit more. Well, Whereas maybe a couple of years ago, if I heard stuff, I'm just flipping through the radio and I hear, if I hear that sound, I'm like, Nope, next. Right. Like, well, that's, I don't want to even try that. Matt, mm -hmm. good R and B and soul. And I know that's part of your journey here is, you know, getting to listen to these albums that haven't traditionally been in your wheelhouse. I always say like, it grows on you. Like mm. it, it, it gets into your bones. And the, the thing that always stands out to me about R&B and soul albums, like real good soul and R&B albums, is that the more I listen to them, the more I like them, which isn't always the case because I'm a novelty seeking guy. But that, to me, that's a defining element of a good soul and R&B album is mm. does it get into your bones the more you listen to it? Do you get the layers like what that's being sung about or the sound or does it resonate with you? So um, I'll be interested as we keep listening to different groups if if that that yeah. ESP and I, comes. Yeah. And I got that here. I mean, I think with the Aretha Franklin, that was much more of a hit me right away. I like this. Right. Mm -hmm. Whereas this was kind of like, Oh, I don't know about you know, my initial reaction. And then by the end of the week, I was going, man, this is good. You know, I don't know how often I, again, would put this on, but I, maybe the more I listen to this stuff, the more um, I will go to it. So this is much um, deeper lyrical content too. And nothing against Aretha yes. Franklin. It's no, I, I no, mean, that's she's very fantastic, true. but yeah, yeah, especially right heavier. in the beginning. She's just she's just like she likes boning in the morning. So yeah. You know, <laughs> so, but it's part of a narrative, right? And it's it like is. The, the 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 reason you were talking about those six through eight songs being so sad is this idea that you're putting out all of this love towards you know mm. this person, and it's important to say person because Dusty Springfield's sexuality was always very interesting. But uh, yes. oh, putting wow. love toward this person, and uh, you kind of you're not getting it back or you're getting increments of it, but you're being sort of spurned and you hear it in like the way the tracks sound and the way mm. she modulates her voice, which is an awesome part of this. But yeah, Dusty Springfield was one of the first people I can remember being like a true, like gay icon as well. Mm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. Josh, was... what, did, what did you think? 
Um, I feel similar to how you felt, Matt. I wasn't, uh, it took me a while to get into this album. Um, the first listen through, she is, if we're going to compare, I'm not sure it's fair to compare to Aretha, but she does have a different sounding voice than Aretha does. It's not as, Aretha's got such a powerful voice and, and I think Dusty has a really great voice, but it's not, it's not like muscular, I guess, in the way that Aretha is. Um, and it's also, like John said, the, the production and the songwriting really complement Dusty and everything is kind of working together, whereas I think Aretha is kind of the front and center of everything. And, and she can carry that, carry her, you know, album in that way. Um, and I noticed the production, uh, rich production, like right away, too. There's a lot of horns and strings in these songs. Um, they mm-hmm. build, like you said. Um, but I do think the songwriting is super strong, like John mentioned, and like, um, some of the, I, I looked up some of the lyrics to, um, to the songs and, um, really clever, um, that Randy Newman song, I don't want to hear it anymore. It's Mm -hmm. basically, she's like hearing other people in the apartment building, like fighting and like overhearing other things things and seeing other people's interactions in the apartment, um, which is pretty clever. And, um, just kind of the, the, the tongue in cheek nature of just a little love and in breakfast in bed are really great. Um, I, I like the, the front half of this album more than the back half, um, which is like, you know, one through six on the track listing more than the, than the back half. I don't really like windmills of your mind. Um, Mm as a song in general um it there's something uh, i i feel like it doesn't belong on this out al- on this album and i don't really understand it even on like thomas crown affair it just seems like <laughs> it should it should just be in like some french musical movie or something like that um but yeah the the album grew on me over time and i appreciated appreciated her her vocal performance a lot. Did either of you share this with your significant others? Because I, I love this album, but I know every time I played this album around various women that I know, they were effusive in their praise of it. Like, I don't know what it is, but it really just struck a chord. I don't know if that's a common reaction to it, but I couldn't help but notice it. Um, yeah, and Sherry was, was more new more dusty, like, mm-hmm. you know, kind of like, Oh, are we going to listen to the pains of dusty spring? You know, something like that. Yep. You know, mm-hmm. so she's more familiar, but uh, no, she, this is something that she definitely liked. Well, mm-hmm. listen to her sing, you don't own me and you'll know immediately. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, <laughs> her voice is made for that song. Yep. Yep. Um, yeah. So, Dusty's voice here is very, that the soul, it's like the sultry, sultry velvety kind of, you know, it, it, it is like, it is what you were saying, Josh. It's not as like, I wouldn't say it's, powerful but um but it's still it's still great and and she you know kind of makes it unique to her and 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 i i like it when it can be a powerful song can also be subtle and 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 reserved i think that there's there's almost um it's it's more challenging i think well and the lyrical content wouldn't have made sense belting these songs because yeah you know this isn't like a i'm a liberated woman song or you know or like i'm a <laughs> right you know getting it all like all out and i'm angry you know it's in either of those right it's it's a different thing it's it's a different feel it's like i want to be in love and 
it's I am and it's just not what I want, but I'm going to try to make it work. And that doesn't lend itself to a, a straight ahead singing. Right. It's right. Yeah. And I think if you listen to some of her earlier stuff, you would definitely be able to hear differences in terms of how she can sing. Um, no one has Aretha's pipes. Right. But you'll see she's got more pipes than she shows off in this album. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I went back and listened to some of her earlier hits um, mm-hmm. to get a feeling of where she was then versus where she was in this album. Um, and that helped. Um, I spent, appreciate this album more. I spent a lot of quarters on Dusty Springfield songs in diners <laughs> in New Jersey over the years, among others. <laughs> but yes, especially but when I was like songs- eight or nine. Yep. John, were there any songs on here that you weren't as a fan of, or is this like a stellar? There were some. I mean, there were some that I there were some that I didn't like as much. I actually am, I, I I don't like "Son of a Preacher Man" as much as I like most of the rest of the album. I like the song, but I I liked other songs a lot more. Um, is it too overplayed. It's just uh, probably that's part of it, but also I actually feel about "Son of a Preacher Man" lyrically, like you, like Josh felt about "Windmill." windmills of your mind like windmills of your mind content wise very much fit this album maybe not sound wise i get what josh is saying but son of a preacher man unless you imagine that that's who dusty's singing about it doesn't fit as well uh, I, mm-hmm. I almost feel like it was shoehorned in because it would be a hit right but uh I, I like certain songs like in the land of make-believe and don't forget about me and i don't want to hear it anymore those are I just really like the nuance of those songs. So um, see, I thought actually I was going to say in the land of make believe might be my least favorite song in this album. It makes sense though, with what, what you like, you know what I mean? And we, this is where you and I do differ a little bit in certain things. Yeah. I think son of a preacher man is kind of an outlier on this album. Mm -hmm. Um, Yes. I was actually expecting more songs like that. And so I was a little disappointed when it was, wasn't, you know, that because that's such a, that's such a strong song and it's, it's a bit more like up tempo. Um, and so I was caught off guard when it, it kind of stuck to the same um, pacing mm-hmm. um, on the other yeah. tracks. I agree. Um, I agree. That's, I hadn't, I hadn't really thought of it exactly like that, but I absolutely agree, Josh. I would think that that was kind of like, yeah, by the time I got the, the end of the album the first time or for first or second time, I was like, wow, that's kind of, you know, that was definitely noticeable. So I agree. Yeah. So everything, despite everything we've said and how we've, I think overall, all three of us have been positive on this album, um, despite being critically acclaimed and now thought of as her best album, this album sold poorly, um, both in the U.S. and the U.K., um, with the exception of Son of a Preacher Man, which was released as a single months before. Um, that was a top 10 hit in both the U.K. and the U.S. Um, but this album itself only reached 99 on the Billboard charts. And it didn't even chart in the UK. So, wow. you know, despite everything we said, this was supposed to be our comeback album. And it really kind of stalled her career further. Um, mm. um, and so now I'm going to back up, do a little rewind, uh, Wayne's World style, and and go back to the beginning of her career just to give you guys a little more context on her. Because this is the only album that we talk about with her on the chart. Oh, I thought we had another one for some reason. I don't think so. No, this is um, it. I, okay. Yeah, I went back and looked. Um, she was born Mary Isabel Catherine Bernadette O'Brien. She does have the... Um, uh, she was born in 1939. She died March 2nd, 1999 of cancer. Um, she has six top 20 singles on the U.S. Billboard Hot 116 on the U.K. charts from 63 to 1989. She professionally started out as a group... Uh, 
with a group named the Lana sisters in 1958, who were not actually sisters in 1960, she formed a pop folk group called the Springfields with her brother, Tom and a man named Tim field. Um, this is when she took the stage name dusty because her name is really long otherwise. So it's a good call on her part. Um, they recorded an album in Nashville called folk songs from the Hills. And this is, where she heard kind of American pop and R&B for the first time. And that's what inspired her um, and influenced her stylistically. She began her solo career in 1963. Um, she was, as I said before, she was quite popular in the early 60s. Um, she had hits with both. Actually, she had hits with the Springfields as, and as well as a, as a solo artist. She was voted the top female British artist by NME from 64 to 67 every year. Um, and interestingly, in, in December of 1964, when she was performing, she was deported from South Africa after performing for an integrated audience, which uh, the government in South Africa didn't um, allow at the time because of apartheid. And unlike um, Graham she's... Parsons, she wasn't trying to get out of a band, uh, Matt. Yeah. So. <laughs> no, correct. Good, good callback. She also is very important, um, which is another reason why I think she's on this list. She's in, she's had a big impact on the global musical landscape. Um, she basically introduced Motown to a wider UK audience, um, both with her covers of Motown songs and also by facilitating um, TV appearances by um, um, Motown artists in the UK. She... Alongside her, all of her uh, musical work, she was on TV on the BBC. She had her own like shows, musical talk shows um, called Dusty. And then there was one later on as well that was kind of a, a variety show type thing. Um, and she hosted a talk show called The Sounds of Motown in um, the UK that was the first appearance of The Temptations, The Supremes, The Miracles, and Stevie Wonder on TV for the UK. Um, and so that was also why she has such a, a kind of a varied and impactful career um, to uh, not only to Britain, but to the pop culture as well. Um, in the year 2020, she was the Library of Congress chose this album for preservation um, as an important album by a woman in the rock era. Um, and albums for Library of Congress are chosen for historical importance, uh, cultural and aesthetic um, impact as well. Um, and she's they considered... They didn't send it on Voyager, did they? <laughs> no, no, they no, didn't. Not um, that important. And uh, she was one of the, she was one of the best-selling UK singers of the 60s. Um, and she was one of the best-selling female singers of the British. She was considered part of the British invasion. And she was one of the best-selling female singers of the oh. British invasion. In reference to what John said uh, earlier about her sexual identity, she never she never married. Um, she had long term female partner domestic partnership that she had. She was always kind of cagey with the media about, um, you know, her preferences, and um, she, she was never... like what David Bowie was trying to play act. She was the real deal of it. Is how I always imagined it. You know, because Bowie always created that while pretty much everybody thinks that he was pretty much straight or just, you know, not all that, yep. you know, Dusty Springfield's identity is kind of what 
a female version of what David Bowie was going for in the seventies. Mm. Right. And in reference to that camp, uh, gay icon status that she had, that very much had to do with her, her look. She had the big be beehive Bufa. hairdo. She, yeah. She had very like elaborate, um, dresses, um, sparkly dresses, kind of, I think of like Dolly Parton in a way. And, um, Nancy she, Sinatra she a, a little bit too. I, I always think yeah. of with her. Yeah. And she had a lot of, um, um, prominent makeup as well um, so i think that all contributed to to that um, aspect of her popularity patula um, clark there's another name if people want to look mm-hmm. these people up they're all good yeah so so that's it about dusty she um you know she really runs the gamut of the 60s um, and this album is at the end of the 60s and you can see why it's considered great and also how it's different from her earlier career. Mm. So any final thoughts from you guys before we transition to Pink Floyd? No, no think- it was good. I, I was glad that uh, I was glad to uh, have the patience to, I mean, this, this project allows me to, you know, forces me really to have the patience to listen more and more, not just, you know, one, mm-hmm. one try. So, uh, but um, it, it allowed me to appreciate the album more than I would have otherwise. And I've said enough. Nice. I think it's time for Pink Floyd. Talk about what song we heard um, at the very beginning of the, of the record, which was uh, Corporal Clegg. So that was in the opening montage of the podcast. And now we're going to hear a clip from John's favorite song, uh, Jug Band Blues. Mm. I don't care if the sun does shine And I don't care if nothing is mine And I don't care if I'm nervous with you Do so it. Pink Floyd. So we're going to be covering these guys a lot, uh, particularly in the 70s, which is I'm sure why Josh is very excited to move on to the <laughs> 70s, because he can't get himself enough of Pink Floyd, who I don't know if you guys have, have seen this on our best ever albums uh, website, but they have in there the list of the top 20 artists of all time. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. Are and they on Pink there? Floyd is number three, the mm-hmm. third best artist <laughs> of all time behind. Radiohead at number two, and who else at number one? The Beatles. Be? The Beatles at number one. Did course. you make so, this website? I believe Matt did secretly. I, this is why best ever albums. Anytime anybody wants to argue with it, there, there might be some things we can we can challenge. All right, on to the bio. Right. On to the bio. So Pink Floyd uh, was a, 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 a psychedelic band that was formed in London in 1965. And at the time, it was the, the main art, uh, members when they first started were Sid Barrett with the guitar and lead vocals, Roger Waters, who played the bass, Rick Wright, who was the keyboardist, and Nick Mason, who played drums. So essentially, Waters and Mason were uh, went to the same school together at the London Polytechnic Institute, where they studied architecture. And Wright was also there, and he joined a little bit later. So the three of them had, were pretty much together right off the bat. Um, they had three other members join, um, that, and they called themselves initially the Sigma Six. And they went through many name changes, which included, just some of these are really interesting, the Abdabs, the Screaming Abdabs, Leonard's Lodgers, 
the Spectrum 5, the Megadeths, and they finally settled on T-Set. And um, eventually they changed their name from T-Set to Pink Floyd when they were, go they were about to go on stage or they were about to go to a show and they realized that one of the other bands that was at this venue was also called T-Set. So <laughs> they, they were like, oh man, we need to change our name. And uh, the name change came from actually a member, uh, Sid Barrett, who said, you know, let's uh, name them after two blues guitarists that were on a compilation record that he owned. So one of the blues guitarists was Pink Anderson and the other one was Floyd Council. And he just said, let's let's call ourselves Pink Floyd. And I think initially they were called the Pink Floyd Sound, but then they eventually just changed it to Pink Floyd. So um Barrett came into the band because he was childhood fans with Waters. And then one of, when the, the person who was the lead singer initially was called to serve by the, by the uh, British Royal Air Force, uh, Barrett came on to join the band as, as lead singer and guitarist. So the band, as some people might know, or one of the things that they became famous for were lengthy, uh, jammy, uh, psychedelic explorations in their music. And, and that kind of got started when they were playing as a one of the, the resident band of a, of a club called the Countdown Club in London. And they, in, they had to play three 90-minute sets on a regular <laughs> basis, which I thought was, you know, just going along the That's lines of the incredible amounts of, you know, show the time, you know, the, the hours that bands were playing, um, you know, in the 60s. So as a way to prevent themselves from repeating a lot of the same songs, they just found themselves going into um, extended lengthy solos, which were able to, you know, keep things a little bit more interesting uh, for them. Um, so they started also playing around with various lighting effects, enhancing the psychedelic experience. And uh, it started off like a lot of these band playing, playing R&B standards, but then began incorporating much more of uh, Sid Barrett's songs as he was the principal songwriter in the early years. In 1967, they signed a, with a, a record contract with EMI, and they released two singles on the Columbia label. So there's Columbia again. Um, so their first album was called Piper of the Gate, at the Gates of Dawn, but we're going to be covering the second album, Saucer Full of Secrets, which was released in, uh, uh, on June 27th, 1968. It is the number 71 album on our list, number 12 in 1968, and 621 of all time. So it was interesting. I thought that the, the album was actually recorded, the various parts of the album were recorded over the span of an entire year, from May of 67 to May of 68. And it did chop, top the, uh, the charts in the UK at number nine, but it never charted in the US until 2019 when it charted at number 158 when the mono version was released for Record Store Day. So <laughs> there you go. They finally, that was, it, was the last, it was the last Pink Floyd album to chart in the US. If I'm not I think mistaken. that's because people, the concentric circles of people that still buy albums and people that are Pink Floyd fans now basically overlaps because, you know, how many people are buying albums anymore? John, does the Zen diagram uh, cover you? <laughs> yes, the Zen, the Zen diagram of yes. <laughs> Why would you want a mono version of this album? That's like the best part of this album. Anyway, let's let Matt, let's let, I think the commentary is going to be awesome on this. So let's let Matt get through his bio. And then, yeah. So uh, the main thing that I think the, the, the main theme with this album is that it, this was the departure of Sid Barrett, um, who throughout the recording and even prior to this, after, after literally and physically, I'm guessing, correct? 
he, he, yeah, he he started to kind of essentially lose his mind. He was doing uh, well. The reports, most of the reports, are saying that he was doing copious amounts of LSD. Although some other people dispute that, but he essentially was going schizophrenic. Um, and so, so this album, Saucer Full of Secrets, saw more. Really, only Sid Barrett only has one song that that he wrote that's on this record. The other songs were written by mostly by Waters and Wright. And so this is that transitional album where Sid Barrett's on the way out and coming into this album was David Gilmore, who went to school with Sid Barrett and also had played with him before Sid Barrett joined Pink Floyd. So he kind of knew the other members of the band. And when Sid Barrett would start to kind of, you know, not show up, he would perform at shows by just kind of standing there and not really playing his instrument and just staring, you know, into the into the crowd um mason called him was was you know was quoted as calling him completely distanced from everything that was going on and they realized hey you know we need to get somebody else to fill this place so david gilmore comes in and initially they 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 still wanted to keep barrett in the band to write songs um and to help with the production of things and tour with gilmore so a very very much in the in the same yeah. light as like the brian wilson right. project yeah. okay <laughs> um but this was quickly dismissed because they really it just got so bad with barrett um with, with his erratic behavior and he was just unreliable and he just wasn't playing or doing you know so they the famous story was um you know on the way to a gig someone in the in the van asked hey we're gonna go pick up sid and they just said now nah, let's just not bother so that was um in 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 uh, 1968, um, late early 1968, but there was a period of time where Gilmore, where, where the band did perform with Gilmore and Sid Barrett in early January of 1968. Um, so that's kind of the, that's a lot of the Pink Floyd fans. You know, this is a very interesting time for them because this is really the bridge between the Sid Barrett. You know, he was the front man. He was the he was the main driving force of the band uh, with Piper of the Gates of Dawn. And some of the other singles that weren't on albums, but and and then this enters Gilmore, and now we're starting to enter into the realm more of the Roger Waters writing, um, you know, writing more of the songs, and uh, you know, kind of go taking the band in a different direction. So that's kind of the history of where we are with this album, um, and and mainly this album is is very much that. It's like we were talking about with you know we mentioned this with the Beatles for sale, um, with David Bowie's album space oddity this is a trend this is definitely a transitional album for the band and uh it it's uh it's here on our list so this can be a fun conversation um john we'll start with you well i talk to me let me let me start with my biases right up front i'm where to begin i'm also often asked what's my least favorite popular band and pink floyd is always my answer to that question uh, so I want to do it. So I, I was pleasantly surprised. And, and one of the things I'm trying to do is revisit long held beliefs that I have and give honest listens. And sure. I was pleasantly surprised that I felt neutral about this album. I did not hate <laughs> this album. I felt neutral. I, I don't know this for a fact. I, I know what uh, Piper at the Gates of Dawn sounds like. I, Jug Band Blues has to be what Sid Barrett wrote, isn't it? Like it has yes. to be, yeah, because it's that it has that British sound, like a British singer, British feel to it, which is what I think of in that first Pink Floyd album. Uh, that doesn't really ever present itself when they become mega Pink Floyd, you know, king of the planetariums, you know, like in the 1970s. <laughs> but, yeah. um, you know, uh, the 
I actually will say, let there be more light. Remember a day in Corporal Clegg, I would listen to again. And uh, uh-huh. I liked, I liked the song structure. I liked that they were a little more reined in than Pink Floyd became later. Um, I often use the term masturbatory to describe Pink Floyd music, um, but they were not. They were they were interesting and tuneful, and I really like them. Um, I, I can't say as much about songs five, six, and seven, um, but they were at least interesting enough that I was glad I listened to it. So. As Pink Floyd albums go, this one would be a success for me. And I'm going to I'm going to continue to try to be very open minded to Pink Floyd. And I don't want to sell it short because I can appreciate the musicianship. Um, but um, but yeah, I, I would say for me, uh, definitely neutral would be how I'd describe it. And certainly doesn't sound like Piper at the Gates of Dawn or really a lot like 70s pink floyd like there's elements of it certainly that you hear what 70s pink floyd would become as opposed to you know their first album but they're they're not really anywhere near like wish you were here or stuff like that Mm -hmm. at this point they're still very much like a a jammy psychedelic but but almost 60s psychedelic type sound more so than the psychedelic sound that they they Oh, in some ways created to some degree. And of course, this yeah. is, this is, I'm sure, highly influential on many bands that I, I, I definitely can see how like a Radiohead, right, would really, the more offbeat Radiohead stuff and this stuff definitely overlaps with each other a little bit. So, um, right. Yeah. So uh, I'll pass to Josh, though. High praise from John. It, for Pink Floyd, it's, it's a very high praise for me. Yes. Wow. Mm-hmm. Josh. I, I thought this was a saucer full of garbage because. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I hope I like the, the, the later direction of Pink Floyd more. I mean, I do like. I, I never thought Josh would be more. Anybody would be more negative on Pink Floyd than I would be. But wow. Okay. <laughs> this album was really. I was really struggling with this album. I felt like they, they, every song started like so promisingly and then Mm. just like went downhill and it's like yanking my chain around. Like here's an awesome like guitar bass track to start the song and then like go in some other completely different direction that doesn't even come back to that at all. Um, Boy, what do we want to clue Josh in on Matt? I I, I, want to let him fit it. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, I, finish I, up, I feel Josh. I feel like that happened with multiple songs on this album. Let there be more light. Really, I was excited when I first heard. I was like, "Oh, it's going to be great," and then it wasn't. Uh, Remember a day, um, set controls for the heart of the sun. I thought, and then that just became like a seven-minute uh, re- repetitive song. Um, you know how I feel about Kazoo, and Corporal Clegg has <laughs> Kazoo's, so X that one out. Saucer full of secrets. They have to have been influenced by 2001 like every other band in yep. this period because this sounds like a 2001 soundscape or a haunted house. It also um, felt 2001 minutes long. I would describe yeah. that song as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so if this is a transition album, maybe this is an outlier and I'll like the, their first album. You know, maybe that will have something different to offer. And some of these, I mean, it sounds like we're going to be listening to a lot of Pink Floyd, so I better strap in. Um, but yeah, I didn't. I listened to this album twice, and it was uh, it was hard both times. Um, mm. 
So I did not, I, I couldn't, I, I struggled to, I think I liked like the United States of America more uh, wow. than this album. So Calliope it, it, Trump's kazoo. Yeah. Or at least like musical montages of different things does. Um, yes. Or something. I don't know. Um, you know, United States of America has a bit more electronic stuff in it too. Um, I still think that album's going to grow on you over time when we listen to more stuff, but we'll see. Maybe. Um, yeah. You know, Os Mutantes. Emily li- really liked that album, by the way. I like that more <laughs> than this album. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't want to like, I don't want to rag on it too much. Um, but I, I, this is not my cup of tea. So. Fair tea enough. set. Yeah, I, this. I didn't know any songs on this album, even though I'm a, I'm a, I, I do like Pink Floyd a lot. Uh, I've, I'm much more familiar with, you know, the, the, the quote unquote, the big albums, right? Like the wall and, and, and dark mm-hmm. side of the moon and wish you were here and animals and even this, even an album like metal. Uh, but this was, this was new. So I was, I was uh, interested to, to hear this. I agree with you, Josh, that it opens right up with let there be more light. That bass line, the, the, the waters is playing there. And then the organ, the, the keys that come in and the drums, it's, it's a great start to the album. Right. Yeah. And then it stops and then it yep. does something totally <laughs> different. And you're like, and it's like a haunting the far, far, far away way. Mm-hmm. And it's like this weird rhythm thing going on. Um, but so I can see how that throws you off. Right. Um, this album to me, I listen to this album a lot because this is not a record that you're going to be able to listen to twice and be able to. I agree. I, I don't I, feel I could yeah. digest this. In I listened to this four times for reference, just to give you an <laughs> idea. Yeah. Cause I really want to give it an honest it. listen. I probably listened to it closer. I was closer to 10. You wow. Know? Um, yeah. I, I listened to this a lot because, well, first of all, I do like Pink Floyd and I think if if you're a Pink Floyd novice, you're not, don't start off with this album. Just do no. it, right? Yeah, yeah. Josh, you're going to, the, the stuff we're going to be doing, particularly in the 70s, I don't think you're going to really like Piper at the Gates of Dawn much either. The st- 70s stuff is very different than this, right? Because Sid Barrett's writing. Well, Jug Band stuff, Blues is, is representative to some degree. Jug Band Blues yeah. is, yes. Mm-hmm. That's, it's, it's more like that. But, um, but the stuff that you're listening to in the 70s is, is very different. And that's the stuff that makes them this huge arena rock, this huge one of the best-selling artists of all time like dark side of the moon was on the charts for a decade like over a decade or something like that well, so i should add too that the main reference point for pink floyd for me is listening to the album backwards with wizard of oz like i always heard about that <laughs> so that's what i always associate pink floyd with <laughs> yes and then there's that too um and mine so- is always the fact that i went to a school with lots of people that loved to smoke the wacky weed and we'd go to the planetarium every year and they'd give us five choices and they'd be awesome. Like there'd be like laser Zeppelin, like laser Nirvana, laser Beatles. And they're all these great ones. And every year laser Floyd won. And it was just like, Oh my God. So yeah. (laughs) So that's what I think of when I think of Pink Floyd sometimes. So maybe unfairly, I think of bad planetarium experiences. Yeah. That's I get that, but I, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's your problem. Um, so, yeah, so you're not going to start. This is not a starting point, right? But this is, I think this is a really cool listen for me because knowing Piper at the Gates of Dawn, knowing the Sid Barrett, you know, kind of story and where they went, um, I, I, I found more out of this. And the more I listened to it, the more I did like um, Set the Controls for the Heart of the Sun 
is a cool song in Pink Floyd lore because it is the only track that all five members, including Gilmore and Barrett, appeared on. Um, so that, that for the recording of that, that, they were both doing that. They were both playing. Um, I think that's kind of a cool song because it's also a Waters. Roger Waters wrote that song, and he wasn't so much into the 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 science fiction type stuff. Um, but this is one of the rare songs that he would do that's in, in that genre, I guess. Um, and it's a very subdued song. And I've read a lot of reviews about it that was saying that one of the things that people like a lot about this is the fact that you think you're like waiting for it to do something and go somewhere and it doesn't, it just stays with that. Mm-hmm. Usually I kind of like it to do a little bit more. Um, but, but I, I thought I, I still appreciated that song. I think Corporal Clegg is, I could certainly see how that's a challenging listen, Josh. Um, but I think the more I listened to that, the more I liked it. It's also represents the, one of the, the first war themed Floyd song that, that Waters so did, which became a big thing for him. It's a really, um, uh, it's a really good song lyrically. I have to give the devil his due there. It's um, like I said, songs one, two, and four, I, I liked actually a fair amount. Yeah, and Waters wrote that about it was it was it was more of a tribute to his dad who died in, in 1944 in World War II, um, and it was kind of like obviously like a tongue in cheek thing, like hey, you know, here here's this guy who lost his leg and let's you know it has a wooden leg and let's it's like a trophy, right? Like you know, looking at that, like you won you won a wooden leg, congratulations. <laughs> um, the saucer full of secret song, the, the 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 long track on here, it's like over 12 minutes. Um, yeah, that's a tough – to me, I mean, that's the majority. It's, it's done in four different parts, and the first eight and a half minutes are – it's basically just noise, right? It's just mm-hmm. – a, it's a variety of different – you know, there's so, there's a little bit of a drum solo. There's 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 But not you know, interesting noise, you know? It's like no, I think they're I going agree. for jazz kind of, but it's not – having listened to a lot of great jazz recently, like it, it very much stands out for not being – John Coltrane or Pharaoh Sanders or Eric Dolphy in terms of filling in space, you know? Right. And it's not, yeah. So that's, I do like the end of it, the fourth piece, which comes at about the last three or four minutes. And that's where, and so this kind of structure is very much something that Floyd, that Pink Floyd would do in subsequent albums. The one that stands out most is, is the song echoes, which is on metal, which we are going Mm -hmm. to get to. Um, And there's a part of that song where in the middle, it's like a 22 minute long song. Right. And in the middle, they they do something similar to that it was just noises it almost sounds like dolphin squealing and it goes on for like five minutes whatever but <laughs> it feels but like 50 i know t- that for a fact <laughs> I, for having listened to that album many times that to me is much more tolerable because at the beginning and the end it's couched in an actual in song right mm-hmm. in an actual song structure this is kind of like the, the the genesis of that right it's like let's just you know and and the producer on here which who's norman smith and Josh combing the uh, and John combing the stacks trivia. Who do we know? Nor- what do we know Norman Smith from? Ooh. Oh, jeez, I don't know. I, don't know. I thought you would know that. He was the he was the engineer that was that produced uh, the Pretty Things album and oh, was also okay. working with the Beatles at the same time. So, oh, okay. um, so he he was their original producer. And um, he argued against Saucer Full of Secrets, the song on this album, um, but he was shot down for that. Um, that's actually broken up to four different pieces, which have to do with uh, the basically it's, it's supposed to represent um, a battle sequence, like a, like a war sequence and the different. Uh, so you know, for for reference, producer yeah. and band label for the doors shoots down their epic overly long piece but obviously pink floyd had a little bit more juice since they got to keep theirs on right I, apparently so apparently yeah, so okay. I, I didn't really read anything about anybody in the record company going don't do that um 
which is not surprising because <laughs> if there was something that they were saying don't do, I would have loved to have heard what that was when, the, when you have the rest of this album to, to, to juxtapose mm-hmm. it against. Um, but, the, but the track on here that I think it deserves the most talk about is, is Jug Band Blues because that's really, not only is that Sid Barrett's last con- contribution on the album, it's the last song on the album, um, and it's his last contribution to the band, but it's, it's, the lyrical content of this is really a guy kind of recognizing that he's about to get, he's getting kicked out of the band, you know, and he understands that he's, he's it's kind of like he's understanding that he's losing his mind. But he also has some fairly lucid ways of, of talking about that. So that's one of the things that, that kind of stands out for a lot of people with well, this song is that, you know, it's, it's really this weird, weird juxtaposition of a dude that's losing it, but also very aware that he's losing it. You know what's interesting, um, Matt? Can I just jump in real quick if yeah, you don't sure. mind? Um, yeah. Later, that idea of isolation is such a piece of Pink Floyd's songwriting. And I know some of that is because they're right like wish you were here right is about sid barrett right and so that's to me when i think of pink floyd so much of their stuff is about isolation and disassociation and stuff so to get a song like jug band blues this early that has those themes you almost don't even notice it because you know where they at least for me i know where they go later yeah but but when you mention that now list hearing it i i hear it a lot better so yeah that so song sounds familiar, so different that than yeah. the rest of the album too yes well that's well, it, sid barrett yeah. right and well that's, and that's and that that's britishness also, yeah yeah and it's also different because when you if when we get to piper the gates of dawn that those those songs are a little bit they're almost like childlike they're a little bit mm-hmm. happier they're kind of goofy right this is like a, this is a sad song this is a guy that's saying goodbye to the band that he fronted and and he was was the head guy for for a while and you know um and and he's very aware that i'm uh, he's losing it right he's he's kind of he, he can't really hack it anymore um so you know it's been called by the, the by the managers at the time it's an extraordinary song the ultimate self-diagnosis on a state of schizophrenia and the portrait of a nervous breakdown um well, i didn't sit there want... though not feel he had schizophrenia wasn't that like a whole big thing for him so I didn't get that as much. Um, I, I I don't know. I, I can't I can't say that specifically. Okay. But there there was the acknowledgement, and, and maybe maybe there's some truth to that. But there was the acknowledgement on his end that you know I I don't think he would have said I'm fine, right? If he's going to play a concert and he just can't play and he's just standing there and he's walking around not doing anything, you know I, I think he knew that something was wrong. He might not have been able to put his finger on it or be able to say, well, it's schizophrenia or no, it's something else. Right. Um, but he was also doing a ton of drugs, right. S- supposedly. So he was certainly not a reliable, you know, uh, member in that, in, in that respect, you know, but, um, but this is like, a, this is a somber song. This is, this is, you know, and, and, and he wanted it to be a single and the band was like, hell no. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, and, and so he eventually leaves the band, um, I'll talk a little bit more about his, you know, what happens with Sid Barrett when we talk about Piper at the Gates of Dawn, but it does end up being something where he does do a couple of solo albums and he still got along with the band because Waters, Wright and Gilmore all produced and worked with and played on his two solo albums that were done in 1970. So they still were trying to help him out, but um but they just couldn't they couldn't carry on with him as a uh, as a band member anymore. So um so I, I would say that I, I did like this the more I listened to it. I can st- certainly see everything that you're saying, Josh, and I'm not going to defend that this is like a, you know, I, I, should this be on the list? I, I, I can't necessarily say that. Um, I, yeah. I, I guess I see why it is because 
of what Floyd became and what it represented in that transition, because there really are kind of two completely different bands. Um, and, you know, but it's still fairly well regarded. I mean, with all of with, with Floyd's like 15 albums that they have, I looked at a bunch of those lists that they have online where they say, oh, you know, what are the, the, the every Pink Floyd album ranked from worst to best, you know? Yeah. And this one tops, this one has topped out at six. It was number six on Consequence of Sound. And then um, it went up to nine for Ultimate Class, Classic Rock. So somewhere between six to nine is where people have, you know, landed this album. And if you're, if you like Pink Floyd, if you don't know much about, um, you know, kind of the earlier stuff, uh, this is definitely a recommend for me. Um, you got to listen to it a bunch of times though, because it does take a while to grow on you. But um, if I could totally see this not being your thing though. Well, it sounds like it's more like deep, deep cut, uh, not even like the hits of Pink Floyd, really. No, I mean, I mean, it's it's probably more well known for like some of those things that I was talking about, right? Like that set set the controls for the heart of the sun is where all five of them are playing. You know, mm -hmm. um, Corporal Clegg is one of the things about that is that's Nick Mason is the main singer of that. He doesn't really sing on that's like the only song that he ever really sings on. You know, um, so and Jug Band Blues, the the last Sid Barrett song. Um, so it's stuff like that. Uh, you know, let there be more light is the first song that David Gilmore played guitar solo on. You know, so it's 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 more of those things than uh, than anything else. Mm, but um, so yeah, the one other thing I would say the album cover. Did you find the album cover interesting at all, Josh? Was that was that was that probably the best part of the album for you? <laughs> it was. <laughs> Go ahead. Maybe not. No. It was designed by an English design group, so the so the band contracted out to get the get the to get the cover uh, created. Um, it was the it was only the second time that EMI allowed a band to hire outside designers for the album cover. Can you guess the first? Yeah, we all we all know the answer to that question. It does it look is the Beatles, Beatles John. Yes, <laughs> yeah. yes it does look almost band. like Native American. The 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 album cover to some degree, which is weird for a British band, but that's the vibe I get a little bit. Yeah. With, the, with, of course, like a weird late 60s, early 70s, like, I don't even know what the bottom of the album is supposed to be, but it looks like some kind of crystals or something. Mm -hmm. um, and the last thing I will say about this is in 2014, drummer Nick Mason named A Saucer Full of Secrets his favorite Pink Floyd album, saying, quote, I think there are ideas contained there that we have continued to use all the way up through our career. I think it was a, it was quite it was a quite good way of making Sid's departure and Dave's arrival, of Mark I'm sorry of marking uh, Sid's departure and Dave's arrival. I actually don't it, disagree with that. It does it does show a lot of breadcrumbs of what they become, but they yeah, become very different. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then he closes with saying, "It's rather nice to have it in one record. When you get both things, it's a cross fade rather than a cut." So um, I disagree. It's not my favorite Pink Floyd album by any stretch, but uh, it, it is. It's it's a very unique album in their catalog. And uh, it's it's worth a listen if you if you have the stomach for it. <laughs> gotcha. Okay. Well, I think we're we're pretty much at the end of the road right here, hitting the almost two hour mark. Uh, but a fun episode. Thanks, guys, for all of your hard work this week. Next week is going to be a very very interesting show because we are doing three completely different types of albums uh, next week. I will be covering James Brown live at the Apollo which is a, we talked about not having a lot of albums from the beginning of the 60s. That is one definitely from earlier in the 60s. So we'll touch base on that. I believe it's Josh, if I remember correctly, gets Willie and the Poor Boys from CCR next week. So we get our first CCR appearance. Am I correct right. about that? Did I get yes. that correct? Okay, mm -hmm. gotcha. And then Matt gets to tap into 
good old Frank Zappa and his band, The Mothers of Invention, and we're only in it for the money, which is the most Frank Zappa title ever. So thoughts before we sign off this week, guys. Are you excited about next week? Yes, I am. There we go. Definitely. <laughs> I'm excited. I'm interested that we're getting a live album. Like that seems kind of a unique uh, little curve that, oh, to, yeah, to, to have a live album in the, in the list, but um, uh, that'll be good. But yeah, not, not terribly familiar with, uh, well, I know CCR from their singles, but um, yeah, I, 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 I know very, my, my brother had uh, the mothers of invention album. And I just remember there's a song on there called hot poop and it's about 40 <laughs> seconds long. So uh have yeah, you uh, a for have it. you listened to the uh, hip hop there before, Matt? Because if you have, you've heard James Brown without even realizing you've heard him before. So. Oh yeah, no, yeah. I, I'm sure I have. It's one of those things where like I can't. Yeah, yes, I know more than I think I do. There we go. Well, and I think we all know more than we think we do occasionally, and hope you guys feel that uh, feel the same way about us as you're listening to this. So I'm going to go ahead and sign off for all three of us for Matt, Josh, and John. Uh, or Matt and Josh, this is John. And uh, thank you for listening. And we look forward to seeing you in episode 11 of Combing the Stacks next week. Have a great week. It's been our pleasure to have hosted you for another episode of Combing the Stacks. But the time has come for us to turn off the lights and send you home with a fond farewell. Before you leave, remember that new episodes are available every Thursday on a variety of streaming platforms, including Anchor, Apple, Google, Spotify, Overcast, and Pocket Casts. You can email with questions, comments, or general feedback at combingthestacks at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter at combingthe. We'd also like to give a shout out to Defy the Mall, who performs our theme song Coastin, as well as Red Bellows, who are creating the ambiance you're currently experiencing by way of their track Phonetic. Have a great night! <laughs>